Welcome to the Critique Journal Club podcast for February 2013. I'm Neil Orford and we're going to go through the articles that caught our attention in the last month. So let's start with the two oscillation trials published in the New England Journal of Medicine this month. The Oscillate Trial Investigators and the Canadian Critical Care Trials Group have published a multi-centre RCT conducted in 39 ICUs in five countries. This trial planned to randomise 1,200 patients with ARDS to early high-frequency oscillation ventilation, 3 to 12 hertz pressure amplitude of 90 centimetres of water, compared to control ventilation, which was tidal volumes of 6 mils per kilo with high titrated PEEP and controlled plateau pressures. The study was stopped at 548 patients due to lack of efficacy and possible harm. The HFOV group had a median of 3 days of HFOV and a mortality of 47%. The conventional ventilation group had a 35% mortality that's a hazard ratio for high-frequency oscillatory ventilation of 1.33 with confidence intervals of 1.09 to 1.64 and a p-value of 0.005. The groups were well matched at baseline. They also report HFOV was associated with more sedation and neuromuscular blockers, more vasoactive agents for a longer time, and a higher ICU mortality. Finally, they had a reduced incidence of refractory hypoxemia, 7% versus 14%. And as an aside, it again appears that PaO2, or the presence or absence of hypoxemia, is not a good indicator of success of a ventilator intervention. That is, it's just a surrogate outcome that doesn't relate to patient outcome. The authors discuss the risk of early stopping rules with the risk of overestimating the magnitude of harm. They tell us that they chose to terminate the study as the increased mortality finding was consistent across all three consecutive analyses. The effect size was large and the need for vasoactive agents suggested a mechanism not offset by improved oxygenation. Why is HFOV harmful? Well, the authors postulate hemodynamic compromise due to higher airway pressures and increased barotrauma. So in summary, early HFOV in ARDS may result in increased mortality. The second HFOV trial published in the same issue of the New England Journal of Medicine is by the OSCAR study group. This trial, an RCT of HFOV, versus conventional ventilation in 795 patients with moderate to severe IRDS ventilated for greater than 48 hours from 29 UK hospitals. So it's a slightly different patient cohort from the last one. That is, it was greater than 48 hours of ARDS rather than early ARDS. They used the Novolung R100 ventilator for HFOV as opposed to the Sensomedics 3100B, which is used in previous trials, including the Oscillate trial. They report no difference in the primary outcome mortality, with HFOV mortality 41.7% compared to conventional ventilation 41.1%. There was also no difference for risk-adjusted mortality. 
HFIV median duration was three days and there was no difference in ventilator-free days between groups. There was an initial increase in the use of neuromuscular blocking agents in the HFOV group, but thereafter there was no difference in neuromuscular blockers, sedation or vasoactive agents between the two groups. So in summary, in this second HFOV study, there was no difference in outcome between the two. Where does that leave us? Well, it doesn't look like there's much evidence to support the use of HFOV in ARDS, and that will come as a bit of a blow to those who advocate its use. It doesn't answer the questions about the role of HFOV for other indications. In JAMA, a systematic review and meta-analysis of the association of hydroxyethyl starch with mortality and acute kidney injury in critically ill patients requiring volume resuscitation was published. The authors start out with the comment that clinical trials and systematic reviews have suggested a greater incidence of renal damage and mortality in patients receiving HES, but these findings have been inconsistent. So they go on to conduct a systematic review with a bit of an interest in the BOLT scandal and its effect on this area of the literature. There were 35 unique studies with 10,880 patients identified and included. Of interest, only four of these studies had greater than 100 patients, and only one was very big, and that's the CHESS study published recently with 3,500 patients. They report an increased risk of mortality and acute kidney injury with starch uh, when the BOLT papers were removed, and that was seven of the studies. So overall, this doesn't tell us a great deal because it just reinforces the findings of the CHESS study uh, and suggests that the use of HES in critically ill patients should be avoided. In intensive care medicine, Eli Azuli and colleagues published an interesting paper called Non-Invasive Mechanical Ventilation in Patients Having Declined Tracheal Intubation. So, this large prospective observational cohort study of patients admitted to 54 ICUs in France and Belgium reports on outcomes of patients admitted for non-invasive ventilation with a do-not-intubate order, and they compare them to patients admitted for NIV with no restriction on care. What they report is that there were 780 NIV patients, of which 574 had full treatment and 134 had a do-not-intubate order. The hospital mortality was 44% in the do-not-intubate group and 12% in the, no, in the full treatment group. So that's not surprising. But what's interesting is the 90-day follow-up for health-related quality of life was similar for the two groups. That is, the non-invasive ventilation group with a do-not-intubate order did not simply have a prolonged dying process with a poor quality of life. They did quite well. So what does that tell us? That maybe non-invasive ventilation with restrictions on intubation can lead to reasonable outcomes in the survivors of that intervention. Also in intensive care medicine, a critical review of the literature was published on the use of high-flow nasal cannula in critically ill infants, children and adults. So this review of the use of high-flow nasal cannula provides an excellent overview of this growing area of critical care, its application in neonates, infants and adults, and future directions. 
Overall, they tell us that in neonates there may be a subset with respiratory distress who derive benefit from high flow nasal cannula. However, no definitive data support that this therapy is superior to CPAP in neonatal respiratory distress. In children with bronchiolitis, there is limited evidence around the use of high flow nasal cannula. What it suggests is that if this therapy is used, it should be reassessed at 60 to 90 minutes. If at this time there is no improvement in heart rate and respiratory rate, then escalation should be considered. If the patient has improved, then it's okay to continue. The efficacy of high-flow nasal cannula in children for other indications has not been demonstrated, such as in asthma and pneumonia. Um, and extrapolation of the limited data that we have in children, particularly in bronchiolitis, to these other conditions is challenging. In adults, there is limited data in hypoxic respiratory failure suggesting some role compared to face mask oxygen. Again, they give us a warning that we should be vigilant for failure in the first 60 to 90 minutes. And the role in COPD and CO2 removal is unclear. There just isn't enough evidence. So we move on to three big endovascular treatment for ischemic stroke trials published in the New England Journal of Medicine. The first is the Mr. Rescue study. This examines the role of endovascular treatment in acute ischemic stroke. This study randomized 118 patients with large vessel anterior circulation stroke to routine care versus embolectomy within eight hours of onset. All had CT or MRI and were assessed for favorable penumbral pattern. There was no difference in 90-day mortality rate or rate of symptomatic intracerebral hemorrhage. Favorable penumbral pattern did not identify patients who would benefit from endovascular therapy. The authors offer the possibility that, that this study used early generation devices with a low revascularization success rate, and it is possible that newer generation devices may improve outcomes, although clearly this was not tested by this study. The second study is the IMS3 trial, Interventional Management of Stroke. In this study, Patients in whom IV TPA was administered within three hours after stroke onset were randomly assigned to receive IV TPA alone or IV TPA followed by endovascular treatment. The study was stopped early, 656 of 900 patients, due to futility, the primary outcome being Rankin score of two or less at 90 days. There was a higher recanalization rate in the endovascular group, but no difference in other clinical outcomes. The authors suggest future trials of endovascular therapy should consider methods to minimize delays to the initiation of endovascular therapy. In addition, although we did not find a significant benefit of endovascular therapy in patients with severe stroke or occlusion of a larger artery, a larger trial that is sufficiently powered to assess these subgroups might show efficacy. Finally, we have the synthesis trial, local versus systemic thrombolysis for acute ischemic stroke. In this trial, 362 patients with acute ischemic stroke within four and a half hours of onset 
were randomized to endovascular therapy, which was TPA, mechanical clot disruption or retrieval, or a combination, versus TPA alone. The median time from stroke onset to the start of treatment was one hour longer in the endovascular group than in the conventional therapy or TPA group. There was no difference in outcome between the groups. So we have three trials of endovascular therapy in acute stroke, predominantly anterior circulation stroke, with evidence of no benefit. And you would think it's going to be very hard to push this barrier much further. Moving to a different subject, in JAMA we have change in end-of-life care for Medicare beneficiaries, site of death, place of care and health care transitions in 2000, 2005 and 2009. This retrospective cohort study of a random sample of US fee-for-service Medicare beneficiaries aged 66 years and older, who died in 2000, and there were 270,000 of that year, 2005, 291,000 patients, or 2009, 286,000 patients, aimed to describe changes in end-of-life care over time. What they found is the proportion of deaths in acute care hospitals decreased from 32.6% to 24.6%. ICU use in the last month of life increased from 24.3% to 29.2%. Hospice use at the time of death increased from 21.6% to 28.4%. And in 2009, late hospice referrals, that is less than three days prior to death, were preceded by an ICU stay in over 40% of patients. Finally, healthcare transitions in the last 90 days of life increased from 2.1 to 3.1 per decedent. So the percentage of patients experienced a transition in the last three days of life increased from 10 to 14%. So what does this mean for ICUs? Well, it seems that in the US at least, more patients are dying out of acute care settings, but this is accompanied by an increase in elderly patients admitted to ICU prior to death or transfer to a hospice to die. And this really could be described as an increase in palliative ICU before death in elderly patients, and that's something we all need to think about. In the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine, a study titled ECMO for Pandemic Influenza A Induced Acute Respiratory Distress Syndrome, a cohort study and propensity matched analysis was published. This prospective observational study describes the outcomes of H1N1 patients with ARDS receiving ECMO, the risk factors for death, and the comparison to propensity score matched patients who received a protective ventilation strategy instead. They report no difference in mortality when comparing ECMO to matched non-ECMO patients. And this adds to the uncertainty regarding the benefit of ECMO, although the obvious concerns about propensity matching, etc. exist. They were unable to match 51 ECMO patients to a conventional ventilation patient. So interestingly, this cohort, who couldn't be matched, were younger and had better outcomes, and maybe that altered the um, comparison. Finally, that increasing values of age, lactate and plateau pressure under ECMO were associated with death, which isn't surprising. 
again in the New England Journal of Medicine, a trial called Effect of Daily Chlorhexidine Bathing on Hospital-Acquired Infection was published. So this multi-centre, non-blinded, cluster-randomised RCT evaluated the effect of daily bathing with 2% chlorhexidine-impregnated washcloths versus non-antimicrobial washcloths. And they reported the incidence of MDROs, multi-drug-resistant organisms, in nine ICUs and bone marrow transplant units. They report a decrease MDRO rate from 6.6 to 5.1 per thousand days with chlorhexidine body wash, a decrease in hospital-acquired bloodstream infections from 6.6 to 4.78 per thousand days, and a decrease in central line-related fungal infections as well as previously shown reduction in gram-positive infections. So a positive result for those who make chlorhexidine-impregnated washcloths. In the American Journal of Respiratory Critical Care Medicine, a study we Australians have been waiting for for a while, which is the STATINS trial, a multi-centre randomised trial of atorvastatin therapy in intensive care patients with severe sepsis. So statins are the most commonly prescribed medication in Australia. They have been shown to have immunomodulating qualities and it has been postulated that they may have a protective role in sepsis. Retrospective studies have supported this idea, but are limited methodologically by the healthy user effect. The mortality bias created by sicker patients with worse outcomes having their statins stopped and the difference between having statins started in hospital compared to started or ceased in chronic users. This prospective phase 2b trial randomised patients with septic shock to statins or placebo with an a priori stratification into de novo or current users. The primary outcome was interleukin-6. They report that enterally administered statins do reach therapeutic levels in critical illness and patients received an average of six days of treatment. De novo statin use did not attenuate inflammation that is, IL-6 levels, or improved survival. Prior statin use was associated with reduced baseline inflammation. Continued statin therapy in prior users was associated with improved survival, but not reduced inflammation. And ICU statin therapy was not associated with an increase in complications, in particular hepatotoxicity or muscle breakdown. So what does this mean? It doesn't seem to support ongoing research into de novo statin use in sepsis, but it does leave open the possibility that prior statin use may be protective in sepsis, and continuing statins in prior users may be beneficial, but not due to a decrease in IL-6. So it will be interesting to see where this goes from here. Again, in the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine, a study called Role of Disease and Macronutrient Dose in the Randomized Controlled EPINIC Trial, a post-hoc analysis. So, to refresh your memories, the EPINIC Trial strategy compared the nutritional strategy recommended by the European guidelines, that is, initiate PN early when enteral nutrition does not reach caloric targets in critically ill patients at risk of malnutrition, that is, early PN, 
And they compared it to the American and Canadian guidelines, which is to tolerate hypocaloric enteral nutrition for one week in intensive care or late PN. And they reported a significantly increased likelihood of earlier alive discharge from the ICU and hospital when hypocaloric or late PM feeding was tolerated. The secondary analysis aims to answer three questions. The first was, was the negative impact of early PN consistent across the range of severity of critical illness? The answer is there was no interaction between illness severity and early or late PN with regards to outcome. The second question, was there a dose dependency between total macronutrient dose and outcome? So non-randomized studies have suggested that a moderate dose of nutrition administered early would result in improved outcomes as compared to full-dose artificial feeding. What they found was an inverse relationship between the cumulative energy intake received and the likelihood of an earlier alive discharge from the ICU in the following days was found. So that is, the less energy the better. Finally, is there a possible differential contribution on the type of macronutrient, more specifically glucose versus protein, to the observed adverse outcomes of early PN? And the answer was no. So in summary, early PN did not help the more severely ill. The lowest cumulative dose was associated with similar or better outcomes than any higher dose. And finally, the deleterious effect of early PN cannot be explained by the increase in glucose over amino acid. In critical care medicine, there's an interesting hypothesis-generating study which looked at antiplatelet therapy protecting against acute lung injury, organ dysfunction or death. So in this secondary analysis of 839 blunt trauma patients enrolled in the National Institute of General Medical Sciences Trauma Glue Grant database, 15% of patients were taking antiplatelet therapy prior to their trauma or prior to their hospitalisation. Now after adjustment for covariates, the group on prior antiplatelet therapy had a lower risk of lung dysfunction and multi-organ failure after red cell transfusion. So this suggests that antiplatelet therapy may protect against red cell-induced organ injury, possibly protecting against the role platelets have in cellular-mediated neutrophil activation and injury. So this is interesting, hypothesis-generating, biologically plausible, and perhaps needs a prospective study to elaborate further. Finally, a study in critical care medicine called The Prevalence of Copied Information by Attendings and Residents in Critical Care Progress Notes. So, management by rumour looks real. Or as the authors say, e-iatrogenesis, the perpetuation of incorrect, unhelpful or out-of-date information. This retrospective cohort study examined electronic notes in 135 patients admitted to a medical ICU over four months, and they found that copying of notes was highly prevalent. That is, over 70% of doctors copied over 20% of notes. They didn't show that mistakes were copied or that harm occurred. Still, food for thought. So that's it for the month of February, and I look forward to talking to you again next month. Goodbye.